thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 158 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Nikki Grattix. Nikki is an award-winning nutritional therapist, bioenergetic practitioner, and mind-body expert, helping people to optimize their energy. In today's show, we explore fatigue, the psychological and physical approach to treating fatigue, and why it is so important to consider both, how childhood trauma can become your adult biology, and how you can achieve abundant, endless energy. Let's welcome Nikki to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Awesome to have you on The Real Food Real. I'd love for you to give us a little bit of context, please. So just a a bit of a journey through your background, your story, if you will, and the training that you've done to date. Yeah, sure. So I actually started out um, training as a clinical nutritionist. Um, but just as I was training, I had met my, my business partner and my life partner at the time who had had chronic fatigue really badly, had been sort of uh, two to five years, two years housebound and, and years bed bound with chronic fatigue. And he just recovered. And when I met him, we kind of got together and created this clinic called the Optimum Health Clinic, which is in London. And it started with just the two of us, but we ended up with sort of uh, 10 practitioners and, and clients in 35 different countries. And uh, working with many, many thousands of, of clients with who had uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and related uh, illnesses. So eventually, we actually um, got a preliminary study published in the British Medical Journal Open. So, uh, and the clinic's still going strong and, and so on. So, um, yeah, that was kind of my background. The other sort of pertinent point is I took care of the nutrition side while I was there. So I was director of nutrition, and we were really looking at kind of functional nutrition interventions. And my partner, Alex, was actually a psychology practitioner, and the, he'd done a lot of the nutrition work in his own recovery recovery and um, but, but what he found is that just nutrition physiological approaches alone weren't enough so he had these psychology sort of uh, interventions that he used and he took care of that side so with the clinic we always had two divisions because this is really the takeaway message of what we'll get into but you know to optimize energy if you have energy issues I really recommend a both a mind and a body approach um, and I think we, we can even get to talking about what we mean by holistic medicine I, I don't think we should just be doing nutrition physiological stuff as well you'll want to look at the psychology side as well we can get into why that is and sort of how we do that in, yeah in for sure interview great yeah yeah absolutely and um you and i were speaking offline about how your specialty is really the mind and body approach to solving or managing fatigue so let's talk about the holistic nature of what you do and why that is so important sure so What's interesting in the, the chronic fatigue community and, and the people with kind of who have fatigue issues is um, most definitely, I mean, if we talk about the most extreme form of fatigue, which is chronic fatigue syndrome, the, and if you have a diagnosis of that, there's a huge, it's a controversial area because it's been classified as a psychiatric illness. And I actually don't agree with that. And there's enough evidence um, to show that, that, that there is definitely physiological changes and imbalance that have occurred with people with chronic fatigue syndrome. And, and even if you're just more in, say, the adrenal fatigue or, you know, in the fatigue link, it, it's not, you're not making up. It's not all just in your head. And so I'm just off the bat, I'll get that out of the way and make people, mm. you know, understand that I'm not saying that, um, you know, CFS is just a psychiatric illness. And, and they've been, that community has been treated very badly by the psychiatric community because they've been classified. And so, you know, the standard treatment intervention has been, um, antidepressants um, it's graded exercise and it's CBT which is they're really saying it's just all in your head so so that's been the downside what's not been understood is that actually psychology is a huge part of the picture but 
um, it actually causes physiological changes. So, and this is the piece where, you know, the psychology is probably not going to go away in the fatigue community. It's going to stay there because it, it's so important. And I want, one of the studies I talk about a lot to help people with chronic fatigue and just, you can be anywhere in that spectrum through to, this is relevant even if you want supercharged energy or if you're just under the weather or you've got adrenal, what we, you know, that classification of what we're calling adrenal fatigue or you're in the more severe chronic fatigue syndrome group. Um, it's worth knowing about um, the adverse childhood events studies, um, which you may not have heard of before, but it's probably one of the most important studies done in medicine. Uh, it's called the ACEs studies, adverse childhood events. And what they were looking at, it was the CDC and Kaiser Permanente here in the US who were looking at 17,500 adults. So it, was, it was mainstream, massive studies. Um, and they were looking at the level of emotional trauma in childhood and the prevalence and the onset of of chronic complex illness in adulthood. And just to give you a quick outline, like of that group that they were studying, 67% of all adults said they'd had at least one ACE adverse childhood event. Mm. If you had um, seven, if you had a sort of high, high level of ACEs, you have an increased risk of seven out of the top 10 causes of death. Um, and people with six ACEs have a 20 year reduction in lifespan. Now, the reason that I got into this study is because if you have ACEs in childhood, you have a six-fold increased risk of chronic fatigue syndrome or a six a 600% increased risk. So really, um, emotional trauma and stress is the poster child illnesses for that are actually chronic fatigue and fatigue-related illnesses. Um, and by the way, just so that people know, like when I talk about, like we're talking about adverse childhood events, what sort of things are we talking about? It's actually things like parents separating or divorce, physical, sexual or emotional abuse, physical or emotional neglect, domestic violence, mental illness in the family, substance abuse or incarceration by a family member. That was just the 10 categories they, they, they chose in the study. And it was, um, there, there are many other like categories that the researchers put hands up and said, look, we missed, missed out, missed them because we just weren't expecting those results. It, the results that, that came out from the adverse childhood event studies were, were unbelievable. But the key thing to take away is, you know, when we talk about stress in adulthood, because we have stresses in adulthood, obviously, we can, you know, it could be loss of a job, loss, loss of a loved one, um, could be divorce, you know, we, we have stresses, the inevitable stresses of adulthood as well. The key piece is how somebody copes with that stress. It's, it's not the stressor itself, it's our perception. And they, you'll always see that in the research. It's not the event, it's the perception. And the problem is what sets up your perceptions and your ability to be resilient to stress in adulthood is your childhood experience. Uh, that's how we learn the imprint of how to respond to events in adulthood. And I can talk more about kind of what happens in childhood, but if you have a difficult childhood, your entire um, HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary sort of cortisol output axis is reset from the date the trauma started. Um, and this is because they started to these unbelievable results in the adverse childhood event studies. They were like, what's happening? What, you know, what's causing all these, these massive onset of illnesses in adulthood? I'll just give you another example. With four ACEs, your risk of hepatitis is two and a half times higher than people with zero ACEs in adulthood. Alzheimer's risk is four, four, over 400% higher. Depression, 4.5 times higher. That's just with four ACEs. Being suicidal, 12 times higher. Two and a half times higher if you have um, of likelihood of having chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. And if you have just two ACEs, you've got 100% increased risk of um, autoimmunity. So I just want people with, <laughs> if you're in the chronic fatigue community and you hate talking about anything to do with psychology because you've been, you know, burnt by the psychiatric profession who've treated the community badly, um, that's, please know that uh, this is one of the most important studies. It's really the door opener for like, nobody can uh, ignore their emotional health. Uh, everybody is actually impacted by ACEs. And even the guys who did the study said that 67% of all adults who said they'd had an ACE was actually a dramatic underestimate. We could actually talk about why that is as well. It was very interesting. But hopefully that gives you a bit of an overview about why I'm recommending a mind and body approach. Oh, absolutely. And there's so much that we can unpack there. And fascinating for me personally, because I'm not you know, across that study. And it's, as you would experience firsthand, it's not really where the sort of 
conventional treatment looks, you know, and that's probably a big part of the problem. So before we do jump into, you know, childhood trauma or an adult biology, I definitely want to talk to you more about the HPA. Um, lots of things to unpack, as I mentioned, but let's just kind of take a step back for a second to, to speak about, you know, I guess fatigue and, and how you would define someone as having chronic fatigue. Yeah, this is, that's an important definition to get to, to, you know, what are we talking about? There is, you know, there is this spectrum and it's, it's important to actually know where you are in that spectrum in order to um, address it with the right type of treatment. Um, more and more this, these days, we do have this category of adrenal fatigue, which is a bit of a misnomer. It's a strange name and because actually there's probably nothing wrong with your adrenals. It's the messaging from the brain and the way that the hormones and neurotransmitters are communicating. And if we actually change if we're in a state of chronic stress it resets the cortisol output which eventually tells the adrenals to to not produce as much cortisol there's nothing inherently wrong with your adrenal glands unless you have autoimmune autoimmune adrenal (laughs) you know which is like like you would have autoimmune thyroid but so that's slightly aside, but what, what we're finding is, uh, you know, adrenal fatigue, it was off, it, a few years ago that was categorized, you know, it was things like fatigue, it was feeling, um, having dips in energy during the day, not being able to exercise, headaches, um, symptoms of hypoglycemia and blood sugar control issues. And over, what's been happening over time is that it's become closer and closer more linked to what we would describe as chronic fatigue syndrome. There's a defining symptom of chronic fatigue syndrome, and that's post-exertional fatigue. So after activity, after physical activity, and it includes, it can include a mentally stressful activity as well, mental or emotional. After that level of activity, you have a degree of post-exertional fatigue, which means you have a drop in energy either right away or uh, you could have delayed fatigue, so it might take a day or two to, to, to come on. Um, to fit the criteria of chronic fatigue syndrome, you also um, need to fit to, to have uh, unrefreshing sleep, um, and often there's other issues going on like um, unrefreshing sleep and brain symptoms like brain fog, memory issues. So these are some of the defining factors. Now, what's happened is, is that we've the, the the diagnosis criteria actually tends to include people who could actually be diagnosed and have depression not chronic fatigue and the difference between somebody who's depressed and somebody who has very much chronic fatigue if you ask a depressed person like what they want to do with their lives they tend to answer back they, they well they don't really know they have a kind of there's an apathetic response if you have a form of fatigue chronic fatigue adrenal fatigue which is the milder form of chronic fatigue syndrome but often has the same symptoms like not being able to you know feeling tired after exercise not being able to exercise um brain symptoms very much part of that sleep issues but marked to a milder degree um if you ask them what they want to do with their lives they're like they'll come out with this whole list and they'll just say but my body doesn't work and that's a big difference. Um, and they actually need to update. They're in the process of updating the kind of the diagnostic criteria. So that's good for people to also understand the difference as well, that you actually, you know, maybe you're not so much chronic fatigue, but you may actually be more depressed. Mm. And the unmotivated, it causes fatigue. Being unmotivated causes fatigue. Someone who's depressed, truly depressed, exercise would make you feel better. If you have a severe form of chronic fatigue, exercise actually causes you to crash. Yep. So that's the key. There's a key difference there. There's also something else that we should mention. But there's also something called burnout. Um, it tends to occur more in response to your job, your occupation, something where you've had a chronic. It, it was defined in sort of the sphere of um, work abilities, and it, it tends to be burnout tends to occur in response to often the caring professions where they get burnt out from over caring for everybody. It's uh, or overachieving in that group. So and it's it's probably quite a degree of adrenal fatigue going on. But it's, it's more like a kind of actually, it's a mild form of depression, burnout, right? So, so there's quite a different thing going on there. Half the problem we've had in the fatigue communities is this, this um, not fully understanding what we've got. And that's part of the process is actually coming to know yourself and actually know what's going on for you personally so that you take the right route and, and take the right 
you know, treatment protocol. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Very important. But what about when we look at the chronic fatigue um, diagnosis, you mentioned a couple of the kind of symptoms, but is there a duration attached to that as well, as in how long you have to be feeling the post-exertional fatigue and unrefreshing sleep and brain fog? Yeah, great point. It needs to have been um, unresolved for at least a minimum of six months. Yes. So, yeah, it's a a great, that's the other uh, key defining factor has to, you know, continued for that long. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, and that, that would be the severe form that it's been unrelenting for, you know, a minimum of six months and it's had a, you know, a major impact on your life, social activities, ability to work and so on. Um, a lot of us are just not in that category, but we're kind of just just holding on <laughs> and so kind of surviving through the day, just about getting through the day and then kind of collapsing and not having much else going on in our, our lives as well. Um, you know, if we carried on that way, we may be at risk of developing something more serious, um, you know, the more serious form of chronic fatigue. So, yeah, if you've got the symptoms of post-exertional fatigue, um, significant brain symptoms and um unrefreshing sleep you may also may or may not have digestive issues muscle pain these types of things and if it's been going on for at least six months you should go and and see a gp about that and it's good to i even though the standard medical convention isn't very useful always it is useful to get a diagnosis and if you've got those types of symptoms by the way you should always just go to the gp go to the gp and just just get a full set of bloods done to rule out that there's nothing more serious going on it's always a safe cautionary thing to do because um, those symptoms can come from other you know more severe illnesses so you know people who come to me and have, have come to me they've always got a diagnosis i always and if they haven't i send them back to the gp and say get a full set of bloods done make sure there's nothing else more serious going on um or just something else that's not necessarily more serious but it's not chronic fatigue once they ruled everything out then then i would consider you know looking at you know a pure treatment for chronic fatigue yeah excellent thank you for clarifying so i wanted to then move into the the hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal um, connection you mentioned. So I'll definitely, you know, give you the space to explain to us how that's relevant. Yeah, so the stress component in fatigue issues is is fundamental and it's it's profoundly, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome is, is really, a lot of it is a process of stress. And the HPA axis that you mentioned there that gets reset, there's a couple of different things to think about when, it, when we think about with chronic fatigue and, and this, this issue. So one of the things that I mentioned is in early childhood, the, there's landmark studies that were done that showed that early life stress resets the cortisol, the glucocorticoid receptors in the brain in the, um, and the hypothalamus in the brain and, and therefore how much cortisol or stress response that we have. And what this reset that happens when there's early life stress basically is that we need less of a stressor to trigger us and our stress response lasts for longer. So what happens is we're already from an early age in a basically a hyper stress response uh, continually from the day the trauma happens. Now, what are the implications about the HPA axis resetting? It has a multiple cascading implication on the body. It doesn't just change the HPA axis. Everything can get reset in the body because the HPA axis is linked to so many other systems in the body. So not only does it make you more, well, less resilient to stress and more likely to respond to stressors, environmental stressors, it also, you know, we've got this, this science of psychoneuroimmunology, which is really fundamentally studying this, this HPA axis, which is really where the rubber hits the road in mind-body medicine, is how our psychology translates into chemistry is by the HPA axis. And one of the things that, that uh, P&I, psychoneuroimmunology, that the science has been around for about the last 25 years has shown is one of the most robust findings is that it will change the immune system. So it will suppress um, immunity in regards to certain things like viruses but, and bugs. It can also skew the immune system the other way. So you start to have allergies and intolerance reactions from everything to chemicals, heavy metals and food intolerances. The other thing that, and this would happen, you don't have to be a child, this could be an adult, you know, if you have a chronic HPA axis change this these changes this cascading impact on the body 
uh, can happen to you as an adult or a child. And, you know, which turns out that a lot of this is actually starting in childhood. So, you know, when we have an adult stress and we've had a lot of emotional stress in childhood, it, that adult stressor is just the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. So, um, and actually your illness may have started all the way back in childhood when the HPX is shifted and you just needed the stressor in adulthood. So when you talk about a cause, the underlying root cause, it can be much, you know, it could be 20 years ago when something got reset. So other things that happen in the body when this HPA axis resets is, um, you know, it's standard if we're in a stress response, a chronic slight stress response all the time, you know, it, low, it lowers digestive enzymes um, and you start to get into gut dysbiosis. We know that there are studies showing, uh, for example, early life stress in monkeys and rat experiments, clearly showing that it changes gut bacteria. And changing the gut bacteria also leads to intestinal permeability. So now you're getting into um, potential there for autoimmune conditions. And um, we know that dysbiosis, by the way, and gut bacteria changes are absolutely correlated with people with chronic fatigue. And the interesting thing is that they know that the gut bacteria actually modulates the HPA axis. So uh, this is like why this relationship between mind and body is bidirectional. So we can knock out our HPA axis by having a stressful event happen. That changes the gut bacteria. And then it, it turns out that the gut bacteria actually, you know, this gut brain axis, it looks like the gut actually changes our response in an even worse way to stress. So it's, you know, stressed. It, Bessel van der Kolk's the world leading expert in emotional trauma. He's the professor of psychiatry at Boston Medical School. And he says, basically, when you have trauma, you're a stressed organism. You don't just have a stressed mind. You become a stressed organism. So what are the other changes that we see? Um, so we have a change in the immune system. We have a change in the endocrine system. We often see changes in the female or a male and female sex hormones, usually a drop in hormones um, can often happen, which would also contribute to further fatigue. Now you're at risk of dysbiosis, food intolerances, catching bugs, viruses, and they're not clearing out. Um, it also changes, uh, it's been shown to change and impact the glial cells in the brain. So the immune system, there's an immune system in the brain. And when you're in this chronic state of stress because your HPX has got reset, you, the, these glial cells go berserk that's what the researchers said they go berserk and they basically start pruning brain cells more than they should in the long term that's the link with things like alzheimer's but i suspect um we've, we know there are studies showing brain inflammation in severe chronic fatigue syndrome as well um, and perhaps one of the most important changes and uh, one of again one of them i think one of the most important studies in chronic fatigue going on right now and this is a study i would flag to like follow this man's work the guy who did the research Mitochondrial dysfunction is a hugely important part of chronic fatigue. And actually, some people would argue that's even more important than the adrenal access shift. It, it, they actually are hand in hand. So, you know, we have this thing called the cell danger response. This is um, Dr. Robert Navio's work, who's the president of the Mitochondrial Medicine Society. His work is probably some of the most important work that we could look at for anybody with fatigue. Why is mitochondrial function so important? Well, um, mitochondria are in most of your cells. There's many, many uh, trillions of mitochondria, and they are responsible for producing ATP, which is the currency, the energy currency that fuels all the functions of your body. So we already know that um, you know the aspect of post-exertional fatigue specifically is probably best explained. The biological basis of post-exertional fatigue is probably best explained by mitochondrial dysfunction so you know we've had a lot of emphasis on adrenal output in the fatigue community and like this adrenal fatigue but really um yes if you have low cortisol you're going to have you know have a degree of fatigue but don't forget the mitochondrial function because hey that that produces atp and when there's the, the atp is cycled and recycled in the mitochondria and when there's a block in the cycling of atp like we're we're producing it too slowly or just not enough. Um, essentially what somebody's doing is when they're doing an activity or, you know, in their life, whatever that may be, you're using up your reserves of ATP and with fatigued people, they don't have enough. So that's what leads to the crash afterwards. And it's essentially the crash is all the ATP disappearing and you won't have any left. And all the things that could cause that there are many things that could be, um, 
these changes in the HP axis, this cascading impact, the amazing thing is the cell, the cell danger response is now showing that not only is mitochondria responsible for producing ATP, it's also responding to danger signals. And it's an ancient uh, response to uh, protective response. Now, if our amygdala in the brain uh, and the HPA axis is constantly getting this message like we're in, we're in danger, we're in danger, we're in danger because our system was reset maybe from early childhood or it could have been an event in adulthood. The, even the mitochondria get the message that, oh, there's a problem, we're under threat. And the cell danger response is essentially the cells shut down in a self-protective mechanism. This is not unlike, I use the analogy of London during the Blitz. <laughs> so when the Germans came in and were bombing London, um, normal activity in London changed. People, food was rationed. Um, we uh, people slept in the tube. Um, you know, and if there was, if we thought that there were going to, the enemy was going to get our weapons, we would blow up the weapons before the enemy could get them. That's exactly what cell danger response does in the mitochondria. If it's sensing there's being a viral invasion or there's a toxin invasion, it will blow up its own ATP to protect itself so the virus can't use its own energy stores against it. Um, the cell membranes thicken. Um, AT, it, we, we switch from ATP to ADP and AMP, which are um, sort of forms of lesser forms that can't be used so efficiently for energy so there's this whole cascade of changes that happen and it's basically it's all about self-protection that's what the cell danger response is and they're actually looking at with chronic fatigue that this this cell danger response gets fixed it's it kind of gets stuck in the system um, and now everything we're doing is looking at how do we reboot mitochondrial function but it ultimately came from these, the signal that was getting from multiple things. So it's not just emotional stress that can cause the cell danger response. It's, it could be a viral, it can be bacterial, it can be chemical, it could be a physical shock, heat, cold, uh, many different things. But that was a long explanation of something which is quite complex. Like CFS is a multi-system cascading changes. But it's, it's, if that sounds like a lot, it's the body is one thing. The mind and body are one thing. We don't just have compartmentalized responses to yeah. stress. That's the piece to take away from this. It's everything changes. When we have a stress, the cells respond, the endocrine responds, the immune system responds, the, the gut responds, the brain responds. So we're a stressed organism. So that's the, you can actually simplify it down and say, you know, that holistically like, everything's changed because bodies. A system, it's an interconnected system, and that's not where conventional medicine has its strengths. It's not how conventional medicine even approaches medicine, which is why it's done such a not a good job for helping people with fatigue. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, everything that you covered was so important to, to I guess, ex explain how complex CFS and, and fatigue is. And I think, you know, it's also really important to clarify, I guess, you know, why things have um, not been successful in supporting these people because, as you would know firsthand, they're often treated like it's all in their head um, or they're given antidepressants and, and the, the treatment then stays on that pharmaceutical route and therefore does not resolve the underlying pathology. So, yeah, very, very interesting and obviously it would be quite different depending on the individual. Um, I'm assuming though your, your treatment um, or the system that you've developed looks at all of those areas. Um, but I think that the mitochondrial dysfunction is obviously where the research is at the moment. What do you use as um, treatment in this area of fatigue? Specifically, okay, or just uh, what, what am I, how am I approaching it? Yeah. Well, yeah, so the thing is, although I hope people aren't feeling, I don't want people to feel overwhelmed because ironically, when we're talking about a system, like the body being a system, it can feel overwhelming. We said, oh my God, all those, all those things have changed. And then they go in the control thing. Oh, I've got to control every single system and recorrect every single thing. That's not how systems biology works. You, there are key, you could almost call them acupressure points, like key points that if you correct them, it helps correct the whole system. And there are certain sort of key areas that people have got to get right. 
that will basically, you know, ultimately the body's too complex right now for us to really understand exactly what's going on. And there's things that happen that, you know, science can't explain things right now. And that's not a bad thing. Actually, in truth, if we, if we remove the blocks to healing, the body knows how to heal itself. Mm -hmm. But some of the key, and that's people really need to learn about trusting that because then they could get part of the, the part of the issue is with chronic fatigue is how you respond to your recovery. So part of one of the um, sort of pitfalls that people get into is, and this is why we had a psychology division, actually, it was even more of a reason we had a psychology division than understanding emotional trauma in childhood it was actually your response to the illness. So if you are crashing and you are starting to get very frightened about crashing and you have a huge amount of fear of, about that and treatments, because maybe the treatments were bad, you didn't know what you were doing and, and you had bad responses, you can cycle between these first few stages of the chronic fatigue illness. So you uh, don't know what's going on. It's, it's, it's totally overwhelming. You're, you don't feel like you can trust your body. Um, it's a shock. You haven't come to terms yet with what's actually happened, but you're just terribly afraid about everything. Now, this is where the mind starts playing in again. And, you know, there's this thing called the placebo effect, and there's also something called the nocebo effect. And the placebo effect is the most studied um, sort of intervention in medicine, which is basically a strong positive belief that an outcome is going to have a positive you know, an outcome will be positive, will make it so. That's, you know, that's why placebos are used in drug trials um, because, you know, you can take a sugar pill and it's as powerful as the drug. At least it's, it's 30% of all drugs, you know, the of efficacy of drugs is explained by the placebo at the moment. So you've got to be very careful about that pitfall, that pitfall. So your psychology plays into it in multiple ways. It's not just things in childhood, and we could talk more about that as well, but it's also be aware about the psychology that you're approaching your illness with. So there's something, there's a lot of people doing this work now where they're specifically helping people stay out of the stress response to being ill. And the key thing is about learning, for example, about pacing. This is one of the things that if you don't get this right, you can't recover. I would literally a strong statement that I did my, I've interviewed 29 world leading experts and I interviewed people like Dr. Sarah Myhill, who's the world's, uh, UK's number one doctor. And her and I were totally on the same page where we basically explained that if you are in boom and bust constantly, mm. so you're constantly doing more exercise than your body can take. So you're having collapses, you're, you're, and then as soon as you get energy, you use it all up again. And then you collapse again, and then and that's called boom and bust. You are perpetuating the illness. And when you're in the down stage where you've collapsed, there is damage that's gone on at the mitochondrial level. You've done damage at the mitochondrial level, and what you'll be doing is perpetuating the illness. Yeah. So it takes and it takes focus. Uh, and by the way, the other thing which will cause people to, to collapse is the fear of collapsing. Yeah. <laughs> so if you have the fear, can be is, is is the same as doing the activity. You have a massive stress response and fear about something actually brings it on as well. So the fear of it or actually doing too much of it, both of them will cause that same thing. So there's a double mastery here needing to happen. One is about not being afraid, but the other thing is about not doing too much. And you can get the opposite thing about, you know, being scared to death, not doing anything, and you don't want to do nothing either. So it's the Goldilocks syndrome, not too hot, not too cold. So if you don't do things in life. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. You know, if you do too much, um, you'll be in boom and bust, you won't be able to recover. If you do too little, you're going to get completely uh, deconditioned. So we know even in, you know, personal training, there's the training response that when you do a little bit more, the body responds to that. You actually need a little bit of stress. Then the body responds positively to that as long as it's not overwhelming. And that's, we call that bouncing the boundaries. So you need to master pacing. That's one of the key things, mm -hmm. mastering pacing your activity levels bouncing the boundaries every so often and if you do overdo it once it doesn't matter and even if you have a crash it doesn't matter i hate that word i tend to use blip i don't like the word relapse either we ban that word um as well so so even pacing's foundational you need to learn how to do that if there is a limit on your energy and you know it's happening you need to choose the right activities don't do nothing mm. but choosing the right activities that are just creating enough stress to slowly recondition that aren't keeping you in boom and bust because if you're in boom and bust you can't cover so pacing hugely important here's and, and we're going to do a multifactorial approach here so that that was that was sort of external behavior another external behavior that's very important is diet i'd say one of the most important things just it's going to sound back to basics but it was so important and people miss this too blood sugar control 
blood sugar control is one of the most important things that you can do. Um, I've lost count of how many times I've explained how to do your diet to manage blood sugar control. We can change a fatigued person's life by having them do a protein breakfast, mm. have enough protein at breakfast, make sure you're having quality protein. Often it does mean meat or fish, quality protein. Many chronic fatigue people are not better off being vegetarian. If you ask, there's many people who actually think being vegetarian, vegan is even one of the reasons for the onset of chronic fatigue in the first place. There's many things that get depleted when that type of diet is not well managed. Mm. It's not true in every case, no. but it's, it's a risk factor. We see the type of people, by the way, who, who are risk factors factors for chronic fatigue um vegetarian vegans people with anorexia bulimia who've had eating disorders people who overtrain dancers athletes so that that's some of the group that fall into this this risk of fatigue so blood sugar control learning how to eat enough protein so you're not starving hungry within two hours and not going on a roller coaster trip of your energy and your anxiety and your mood levels, and this also affects sleep as well. And there's some big things going on on the diet side where the, the paleo diet and the keto, ketogenic diet, which is even more low sugar, low carb, it's Goldilocks syndrome again. So I've had people where if you do fasting, juicing, ketogenic, of so many fatigue patients get worse doing that. The reason is if you have too little carb in your diet, carbohydrates like the ketogenic diet or you know fasting or juice fasting, uh, too little carb actually raises cortisol. Mm. Um, and it also is carbohydrates are a source of serotonin. Mm-hmm. So and someone can actually feel a lot worse. On the other side, on the other side, if somebody, this is, this is like core training that I do with my clients. On the other side of that is somebody who has too much carbohydrate and not enough protein and they're having these blood sugar roller coaster happening. That's going to increase their anxiety. They're going to feel unstable. They're going to have feeling jittery, ungrounded, brain fog. So you want to avoid either of those extremes. And I teach people how to look for the symptoms. I don't give a prescription. I, t- I show them how to listen to their own body. And that's what they're doing with pacing as well. And that's really what chronic fatigue is about in terms of recovery is learning to listen to your body and what it's saying to you. So if it crashes when you've done too much, it's telling you it needs less. If you feel starving hungry because you had a, pay- a, a plate of pasta with tomatoes with no protein and you missed breakfast and you're feeling all over the place, decide you need more protein so that's there's there's quite a lot of other things that i get people to do on the diet there's a lot we could talk about with that on diet there's a lot more people can do but it's like the 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 blood sugar control is like basic like number one um but i want to just keep it this multifactorial so i do also you want to consider your environment this is this is like basic 101 things people should do you do want to clean up your home external environment so I do recommend people go organic. I do recommend people get rid of the toxins and the toxic exposures that they're getting in personal hygiene products, um, you know, the home care cleaning products and food. So cleaning up all of that, this exposure to, you know, bisphenol A, there's so much going on with all that. And we've got Wi-Fi. <laughs> we've got electro smog thrown in. So, you know, an environmental cleanup is I, it's one of my kind of basic steps that I have people do as well. So it's not only what you're doing in your own body, but also think about your environment. Um, and I'll give one other tip on the physical environmental side that's been profound for people with fatigue and it's been life-changing for people. Circadian rhythm management, can't tell you how important that's been. That was a, quite a recent upgrade to what I recommend people are doing. So, you know, if you have chronic fatigue, it's just here's, here's the thing, if you did this one thing, like if you did your blood sugar control, did your pacing, and you go to bed at 9 p.m., <laughs> go to bed at 9 p.m., <laughs> just, just do that, okay? And make sure you've got, I actually recommend people have blue blocking glasses so that they're not getting exposure to blue light at night when it goes dark, because we should actually be in campfire light when it gets dark, and you need bright sunlight, sun, sunlight during the day. No sunglasses, bright sunlight, if you can, first 30 to 90 minutes in the morning. This is Harvard research. Um, We need light to produce hormones in the right time, in the right amount. Um, And it's an absolute, if you're getting too much blue light, you're watching your computer at night, um, you know, excessive blue light from TV screens and things like this at night, it absolutely disrupts melatonin production. It will disrupt your sleep. And it leads to mood disorders. It's stressful on the HP axis and it's, it's all sending your system out of whack. So I've, I've, we've got 
I've got practitioner friends here where we can correct an adrenal fatigue profile by doing nothing except managing circadian rhythm. So I also tell people not to eat three hours before bed. Um, if they can, they might need a little snack if they're a little bit hypoglycemic. But again, it's all to improve sleep because you want the body to sleep at night. You don't want to be having it digest food. So that's some of the things. So just to give you an idea about that, so sort of some of the top things I do on the physical side, top things on the psychology side is this mindset about um, understanding how recovery occurs, not getting into a massive fear pattern. And there are whole therapies that have come about, like the lightning process, um, what we call the stop process that we did at the Optimum Health Clinic. In Canada, it's called dynamic neural retraining. Um, it's popped up all over the world. And it's, it's all using kind of NLP techniques to get people out of a state of stress response to their situation. Because it's traumatizing when you've got chronic fatigue syndrome. It's affected your whole life and you're not able to work. And you need the help to know what to expect and how to recover from that. So a stop technique is basically a way of stopping the mental worry and stress. So if you're chronically focused on your symptoms all the time, chronically worried and asking yourself, how are you going to recover? Chronically afraid that you can't manage and control the situation. And basically, you're in that chronic fear state you're perpetuating the stress response, which is how chronic fatigue starts in the first place. Mm. So it's foundational to get out of that stress state. Um, you know, I've had clients where they were petrified for crashing, so they crashed anyway, petrified through it. After coaching them, you know, when they crash, they'd be sitting there talking about the weather, having a cup of tea, but it didn't matter. And once they had that response, they stopped crashing. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of this law of attraction, what you, what you fear, what you strongly emote, you attract. So, you know, the more you can stay optimistic about that and not just staying out of the fear response. Um, things like, so that's one of the top psychology things. And I can mention one other thing that's, that's on the psychology side. If that um, is interesting, we're getting into like interventions here if you want to talk about one other as well oh absolutely so interesting i'm just happy for you to to share the practical <laughs> steps because that's what it's all about great great okay so the other piece that's foundational um in the psychology side and this is this is where we have massive shifts in in my my clients and people just sort of bursting into tears in the sessions because they have massive aha moments and realizations so there is this we talked about the psychology of the stress response to being ill and your current circumstance and you've got to get that that under control there's also understanding some of the deeper stuff that when you clear the mental stress and you get your body out of anxiety there's some deeper patterns that we've we've generally you know there's definitely some personality types that are more prone to chronic fatigue than others and it's backed up in the in the research as well and it links back to early life trauma and the thing to understand about early life trauma is that the majority of it and this is Bessel van der Kolk's work again is not the type of trauma that qualifies for PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. You may have some of that from an event, but most people's early life trauma isn't qualifying for PTSD. So it's not one discrete event like a car crash or being hospitalized or a traumatic birth. It's not one discrete event that you then have flashbacks about and you, you have um, sort of avoidance tendencies and you might have nightmares about the majority of early life trauma relates to attachment trauma, which is it's relational trauma. And it's how we are reacting and relating to our key caregivers and the key people who influence us all the way up to, you know, up to 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. And a very, very important period of time is between naught, which is conception, up to age four, because that's also the precognitive time where there's a lot that can get imprinted onto somebody at that young age, um, which is like not even in, you know, it's not a explicit memory. It's not in your, cog the cognitive brain hadn't even come online before the age of four. So what are the sort of things that I'm talking about? And these, these, it's very deep stuff. And if, you know, not everybody is willing to go there, but many people are so ill that they're like, you know, just tell me what I need to do. Mm. So when we look at this very early life stress, when we don't have proper bonding with our key caregivers between the ages of zero and four, um, this is a, that's a serious form of attachment trauma. And it actually occurs, believe it or not, in 50% of all adults don't properly attach with 
parents. So this is the 6,000 um, mother-baby interactions. This was confirmed by another 10,000 adult interviews, well-known in psychology and attachment theory, that basically about 50% of adults don't properly securely attach. And how do we attach? It's through emotional bonding, and it's the mother, often it is the mother playing into this, but the father has an influence too. You know, the way that our brains develop is not in a vacuum. Our brains do not develop in a vacuum. They don't just grow from DNA. They actually, we have neural pathways that develop in response to other, in response to the caregiver. So if your mother is distracted, depressed, not showing you emotional love for whatever reasons going on in her life, we have something called mirror neurons. And the science of mirror neurons is burgeoning and it's a very important area if she's not showing empathy and emotional connection to you you don't develop empathy neurons Mm. so you you also don't have that and it means you won't have that with your children you won't pass it on with your children either now before age four this and by the way mum's emotional state is definitely translated to baby in utero so that's called the fetal hypothesis syndrome and it's been shown that if mum's stressed depressed all the rest of it changes the epigenetic expression in the baby as well so this is like kind of really key key time if we are if there are if there's bad feeling uh, you know a young baby up to the age of four is a ball of emotion and it is a sponge of emotional feeling and if there's bad feeling going on in the environment it can absorb that the baby absorbs it and because it can't differentiate between self and other because it's not developed yet it can start to think or feel that it is bad this feels bad i am bad and that then that core identity of feeling bad um so it, people will relate to this or they'll kind of they'll know what i'm talking about so there's a feeling bad like i'm not good enough already I'm already unworthy. There must be something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I'm not getting unconditional love. Now, that can happen after the age of four as well by the way that our parents treat us verbally, emotionally. Um, You know, there's all kinds of things that can cause emotional neglect, for example, and that's at epidemic levels of emotional neglect going on. And essentially, the core, the key takeaway is you don't ultimately feel okay just as you are because you didn't get the unconditional love. So what do you do? You learn that you have to earn it because you're not okay that you are. How do you earn it? You become a super achiever because you think that basically if you do enough and achieve enough well enough, you'll earn it. The other way that people do it is they become super givers. Tons of people with chronic fatigue are all the, the practitioners, mothers, all the overgivers that learn that the only way they can get love is by giving it and that, and that gets out of balance and they don't take, take care of themselves enough. That's how they end up with chronic fatigue. See how this is happening? It's the same with um, the achiever types. Never stop, can't stop, have to keep running, never calm down, don't, take it, don't know how to relax, forget how to relax, don't even know what that is by the time they get totally burnt out and end up with chronic fatigue syndrome. There's other ones as well, um, perfectionism. If I just do it right, like everything perfect, I'll be lovable. So it takes deep work to start to identify that this is happening. Emotional neglect is really tricky because it's not what happened in childhood, like with PTSD. It's what didn't happen. And it takes some investigation and exploration to discover, are you running that pattern? And is this what ultimately caused the onset of the chronic fatigue? So have you been a core achiever and actually... Is, the, is this actually you're suffering from self-love deficit disorder? That's what we're, there's a brilliant psychotherapist who's, who's coined the phrase self-love deficit disorder. And many, many people with fatigue have that. There's another type, which is the anxiety type. Here's a couple of tools for people that can go and start exploring this. And this is really how, how do you start finding out this? Um, the Enneagram is a personality typing system is one of the few that actually looks at these exact patterns from childhood. Um, and they have a the number of type one is the perfectionist, type two is the giver, type three is the achiever, type six is the anxiety type. If you go to the enneagraminstitute.com, you can do the quiz on there. That's just a start point. Learning to what all the personality types are is one of the best ways of, of understanding it. And one of the best books was The Wisdom of the Enneagram. So it's an exploration. Um, and you need to know who you are, know you know, get the definition. There's a bit of categorization going on in order to, to, to transcend it. So it's, it's really know thyself and know your own patterns. I also highly recommend a book that is exploding, that's been exploding on the internet and the author's doing brilliantly and at some stage I'll, I'll also interview her. It's um, Dr. Johnny Swerb and it's a book called Running on Empty. 
running on empty. And she lays out all the scenarios in family backgrounds where emotional neglect is taking place. And I can't tell you how many of my clients have read the book and have just had massive awakenings. It's helped them learn so much about the guilt of giving to themselves, why they can't stop and relax, why common sense is so uncommon <laughs> about you know um, learning to take breaks, learning uh, when you need to stop, learning to stop overgiving to others. And it, a lot of it comes back to this self-love deficit disorder. And it's part of the core work that I do with patients now is I will, I'm looking at everything. So I can, I'm sort of assessing, we've got to get the basics right on the, on the physical side. I do do adrenal testing. I do do thyroid testing. I do do mitochondrial function testing. I do gut testing. I do everything on that side where we might use, you know, dietary supplement interventions for all of that. Um, but I also have the person start to, you know, one of the things, these early life um, experiences and emotional neglect, which is so epidemic, will sabotage a person so that you, it's very interesting if they, they're not doing the circadian rhythm management or they're not doing the diet or they're not doing the pacing. You'll usually see it, find it's this deeper cause. So this, this self-love deficit disorder will sabotage your best efforts to recover if it's going on. And it's usually, most, a lot of it is unconscious or semi-conscious because sometimes painful childhood experiences become disassociated because we don't want, how we survived as a child was by not feeding our painful feelings. So we shut that down and then we went into super giver, super achiever, super perfectionist, whichever thing it is. So that's quite a lot, it's quite deep. <laughs> but um, that kind of sums up my my overall protocol, how I approach fatigue these days. Yeah, I love it. I think, you know, so much to learn there and I'm confident, you know, the basics are obviously really important and our listeners are hopefully, you know, aware of some of the nutritional and lifestyle strategies that you mentioned, but I don't feel that the, you know, the emotional and um, the early life side to things, um, the mind body, as you say, um, are discussed enough in this space. So, um, I'm confident people would have learned a lot from you today and I would love for you to tell us more about where your online home is, how people can learn more about you and, of course, if they want um, or if they can work with you personally. Yeah, sure. So my website is nikkigratrix.com, N-I-K-I-G-R-A-T-R-I-X.com. Um, on there I actually have a free resource so you could actually go online and there's a tab at the top called ACE score. So if you want to get your own ACE score, I have an extended questionnaire that it's no opt-in required. You can sort of go through that and start to assess your own, if you had adversity in childhood. And then I have a free ebook on there as well. You can sign up for, which is the seven steps to healing childhood emotional trauma. And yeah, I, am, I do work one-on-one -on -one with clients at the moment as well with this kind of multifactorial approach. And it, you can see that on my website as well. You can just go to start with Nikki in that tab. And um, I, I do free 15-minute chats if people um, want to have a word with me more in depth about their case before they work with me as well. So yeah, just come to my website. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us on The Real Food Real, your absolute wealth of knowledge. And it's so clear how passionate you are about changing the fatigue space. And we're very grateful for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for your work, sharing such um, you know, great information and, and the work that you're doing as well. So great. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.